0: Well, if you return uh, with me in your Bibles to Amos uh, chapter 2, uh, hopefully you're figuring out where in the Bible uh, Amos is, but if you're still uh, struggling, in the church Bibles at least, uh, it's page 918, uh, Amos chapter 2, uh, and this evening we're going to look at verses 6 uh, down to verse 16 uh, of that chapter. So let's begin uh, by reading God's word together from Amos chapter 2 and verse 6. This is what the Lord says For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor, as on the dust of the ground, and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl, and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar, on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Yet... I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children, the Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet footed soldier will not get away. And the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Well, this is God's word. <clears throat> and I've entitled this uh, sermon, Roaring at Israel. I wonder, uh, when you listen to a sermon, uh, how often you think something along these lines. This sermon would be really good for, put a name in the place. Now, sometimes this is okay because, for example, if you invite a friend to a carol service uh, and they don't come and the gospel is preached, it's right to think, I really wish they had come so they could hear the gospel. But, but that's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about when the sermon is preached and sin is mentioned and spoken of and we think, I hope they're listening or I wish they were here to hear this because they really need to hear it. And we can even be kind of pleased that God, maybe through this sermon, will sort that person out. Well, so far in Amos' prophecy, the judgments against the nations that we saw last week would have been music to Israel's ears. They would have been listening to each oracle, and it would have been followed in Israel by whatever the Hebrew equivalent of hooray is. They would have been saying, yes, go for it, Amos, give it to them. Each nation, as we go around the ones around Israel, the people in Israel would have been thrilled. This sermon is for them. I hope they're listening. God's going to come for them. This is brilliant. They would have wondered, you know, this is the best sermon ever, Amos. You've come all this way to tell us this. This is great. And after the seventh oracle, which in Hebrew poetry, uh, the seventh usually means the completion, the Israelites would have thought that Amos would stop the sermon, pack up and go home to Tekoa, because they would have expected that to be the end. Now, you all know what it feels like when you think the end of the sermon happens, and then it doesn't. Well, this is what the people of Israel would have felt at just this time. So you can imagine, then... The shock on their faces when verse 6 arrives. You can imagine the shock when the seventh oracle is not the completion. When there is an eighth oracle where the pattern begins exactly the same as all the other nations. Look at verse 6. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four sins. I will not relent. And what we begin to see here is that rather than Amos coming to please Israel by judging all of their enemies around them, Amos actually turns things on its head. He uses the judgment of the nations around Israel to show Israel that judgment is coming on them. Let me show you uh, what I mean with the pitchy potty. I uh, can't see all that clearly because uh, I realized when I looked at it just then, it's not that clear. Uh, but I can explain the picture a little bit. Uh, the, the, the nations from the oracles that we looked at last week all surround Israel. And there's a kind of a circular pattern that's going on where it goes around and around where it ends with Israel. So it comes to Judah, their Israel's brother, just below, and they think that's the end, and they're happy. Even Judah, those goody-goodies down south, even they've got it coming to them, but it ends up being directed at Israel. They are the target. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, because in chapter 1 and verse 1, we are told that this prophecy is concerning Israel. So it was strange last week that God's Uh, word was prophesying against all the other nations almost everyone except Israel but the Lord uses those nations to bring the judgment around to Israel they are the principal target the lion is roaring not just at the nations he's roaring at Israel And as the nations, as Israel looked around the nations and celebrated the demise that was coming their way, they come to realize the shock that they are the target. Now we love to listen to what God has to say to other people, don't we? We said that at the beginning. We can listen to sermons like that, but this message is for all of us. We are to listen to how the lion roars at his own people. His own people. So don't listen to this sermon and think, I'm really glad they're here, or I wish they were here. We need to listen to this ourselves. This is God speaking to us. Well, this passage breaks down into three quite distinct sections. In verses six to eight, We see the sin of God's people. In verses 9 to 12, we see the signs of God's goodness. And in verses 13 to 16, we see the shock of God's judgment. Sin of God's people, signs of God's goodness, the shock of God's judgment. So first of all, then, we see the sin of God's people. And we see that the sin of God's people is just like everybody else. Up to this point, Amos has outlined the sins and the judgment of the nations surrounding Israel using a repeated pattern. But this oracle is longer than all of the others. And the reason is because we see that Israel's oracle pulls all of the sins of all of the other nations together and shows that Israel really are no different from them. The people of God look no different From the world around them. Well, let's see how this is the case. First of all, we see that there is social injustice. Uh, We see this beginning in verse 6, where the first accusation is about the innocent being sold for silver. And it refers to selling people into slavery, uh, just like Gaza and Tyre did in the oracles we read last week. And the reason for this slavery is given in the second accusation in verse 6. The needy are sold for a pair of sandals. Now, a pair of sandals uh, was not worth much money at all. They were very low value. And someone might owe a lender the equivalent money of what would be a pair of sandals. Hardly anything at all. So you might owe me I don't know, a pound or something like that. Not a lot of money. But the lender then would call the loan in early. And so the needy person wasn't able to repay the loan yet. They didn't have the money. And so they were sold into debt slavery because they couldn't pay the loan that was called in early. And because the loan was just a pair of sandals, it was, it was nothing But to the needy person, that was everything. That was more than they had. They had to sell themselves into slavery. It was unfair and it was unnecessary. It was unjust. And Israel were doing this to their own brothers and sisters in the land. And the third accusation carries on this theme of social injustice. Look at verse 7. They trample on the heads of the poor. As on the dust of the ground. So they oppress the poor, they treat them with contempt, and they humiliate them. In in a modern phrase, we might say they rub their noses in their poverty. They don't help them, they make things worse, and they humiliate them. They let the poor know who their betters are. And then, fourthly, they deny justice to the oppressed. So the money and the power that the rich have is used to get themselves out of trouble and they deny justice to those who can't afford the representation in court that would help them. Israel was just like everyone else in the way that injustice, social injustice thrived in their land. Well, what about us? How how is the... How are we just like everybody else in this kind of a way? Well, the church should be a place where people from all walks of life are welcomed and cared for, where those who are less well-off are cared for by the members of the church and helped in various ways. So how do we, as a church, perhaps mirror this kind of behavior? Well, when we are praying for conversions or looking for opportunities to share our faith, do we ever consider the poor in our community? Or do we go to those that, if you are richer, you might be more comfortable speaking to? Do you have assumptions that People who receive benefits are just lazy and then treat them with contempt without realising any of their situation. When we see someone in need in the church, do you help or rather not help because you assume someone else will do it? Or can we sometimes judge people because of the way they might talk or their accent and vocabulary? Maybe... We do those kind of things, even subconsciously, and we need to take a look at ourselves. But the church should not be like the world when it comes to this kind of injustice. So we see social injustice in the land. In the, but in the second half of verse 7, we see the, a fifth accusation, another area of sin, that of sexual immorality. In a second, At the end of verse 7, we see that the father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Uh, the word for girl here can refer to a female servant, and that's likely the meaning here. This is either a slave or a prostitute that the father and son are using, and it was forbidden in the law for a father and a son to have sex with the same woman. But to compound this, and what makes it Really, worse is the apparent sexual exploitation of this girl. And in the church, we can be very good at pointing out and judging the sexual immorality of the world around us. But I wonder if the internet history of the church was published for all the world to see, how different would it be from the world? in terms of looking at pornography and things like that? Can you really say that you are different from the world around us in terms of sexual immorality? Because we should be different, very, very different, and not look like the world around us when it comes to this. Well, in verse 8, we see a final set of sins, the sins of hypocrisy. In, these, in this verse, we see two examples of religious observance with rank hypocrisy, where they flaunt their sins at their religious feasts. So first of all, a sixth accusation is that they lie down beside every altar on garments taken as pledge. A garment refers to someone's cloak, which would keep them warm at night, and it was a person's last piece of clothing that they would give away. And Israel's law said that a garment, the last piece of clothing that would keep you warm at night, if that was taken in pledge, it must be given back to them at night so that the person would have some warmth. You couldn't just take every piece of clothing they had. But in this verse, the person who is owed money took the cloak they were supposed to return and lied down on it beside the altar where they were worshipping God. Do you see the hypocrisy? And secondly, in verse 8, we see another form of this. In the seventh and final sin that's mentioned here. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. And what seems to be going on here is the poor had been wrongfully fined And the elite use the money to buy expensive wine in order to have a good time at the feast in the worship place, in the house of their God. Again, do you see the hypocrisy? They're stealing from people, really, using that money to buy the communion wine, if you like, and then having a good time in the house of God. But again, we look at this, and it is disgusting and it is wrong. But how often do we show great hypocrisy when we come to worship God in church? We might not bring someone's last item of clothing, and we might not bring in wine that we might have stolen or taken inappropriately. But how often do we come to church having been horrible to our spouse or our children, even on the journey in? How often do we come to worship without having put any thought at all into what we're coming to do. No no confession of sin, no praying for the the service, no thought of anybody else. How often do we do that? How often do we continue to worship without being reconciled to our brother or sister? When we raise our arms in worship when they should be wrapped around the person that we need to be reconciled with. The church ought to look different From the world, you see? If your life was on camera, would there be evidence that would convict you of being a Christian? Or if your life was on camera, would it show the kind of hypocrisy that we see here? The sins of God's people were just like everybody else. Is your life? Just like everybody else. But what made this worse was that Israel had a special relationship with God. They weren't like everybody else. God had been good to them, and He'd shown His goodness to them in very special ways. And we see this in verses 9 to 12, where we see the signs of God's goodness which were unlike anybody else. The word for sin, used over and over in the oracles against the nations, is a word that means rebellion, rebellion against God. But what made Israel's rebellion worse from all the other nations was that they had experienced the goodness of God in extraordinary ways, unlike anybody else. Notice in verse 9, we see the word yet. This is a word of contrast, isn't it? Israel's sin is compared to the goodness of God, and it shows that not only have they not been like the God whose people they are, they have shown gross ingratitude to him. He's been so good to them, and they have rebelled against him. And from verse 9, we see three ways specifically that God has shown his great goodness to his people. First of all, he destroyed the Amorites. Uh, the phrase Amorites uh, really is a broad label for those who were living in Canaan, the promised land that Israel were given by God after they left Egypt. In Numbers chapter 13, Israel went and spied on Canaan. And one of the fears of the spies was that these people in the land are really big. They were terrified of the size of the people in Canaan. In Numbers 13, we read, But the people who lived there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there who seemed to be giant men. But notice in Amos here how Israel are reminded that although their enemies were powerful and big, Amos describes them, look in verse 9, as tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. God completely destroyed them. The phrase, their fruit above and their root below means, however tall they are, they were destroyed from top to bottom. From the fruit at the top to the root at the bottom. And God has done this for Israel. He says, I destroyed them. It was him that did it. He was the one who was good to them. Then in verse 10, Amos reminds them of how God brought Israel through, uh, from Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land over 40 years. This was a very familiar story and is to most of us, I'm sure, of the Exodus. It was the archetypal account of God's goodness to Israel. Again, notice that God did this for them. He says, I brought you up. And then in verse 11, Amos reveals another aspect of God's goodness, his revelation. He sent prophets and Nazarites to them. Now, the prophets and the Nazarites are two kinds of revelation. The prophets spoke God's word verbally to the people. God gave the prophets a vision, the prophets would speak that vision, and the people knew what God required of them. A bit like a preacher today who opens the Bible and, uh, and teaches what it says. That was like the prophet's. But the Nazarites spoke God's word not so much by what they said, but showed God's word by how they lived. In Numbers chapter 6, you can read of the Nazarite vow. They were dedicated to God in special ways that were visible, uh, not least of which was the not cutting of their hair. They they would let it just grow and grow and grow. An example of that is is Samson. He was a Nazarite whose Her hair was very long until it was obviously cut off. But the Nazarites showed people holiness and dedication to God. And so with spoken word from the prophets and the visible godly example of the Nazarites, the Lord had been good to Israel in the way that he had revealed himself to them. Again, notice God did this for them. I also raised up prophets and Nazarites. But in verse 12, notice how Israel treated those prophets and Nazarites. They made the Nazarites drink wine, which the Nazarites were forbidden to do as Nazarites. It was one of the ways they were dedicated to God. They could not drink wine. And they commanded the prophets to be quiet. In other words, they rejected the revelation of God. They didn't want to hear it. They wanted to continue in their own sin. And when we want to rebel against God, we want to go our own way Two things we find very irritating, don't we? People who tell us the Bible and people who are holy. We want those who tell us the Bible to stop speaking to us And we want those who are holy either to go away or better still, to fall down in their own sin because they make us uncomfortable and look bad. God had been so good to Israel. He had been good to them in ways unlike anybody else. And their reaction in their rebellion was one of gross ingratitude. And brothers and sisters, hasn't God been good to us? Hasn't he? He sent his only son to die for us on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He offers us forgiveness of all of our sin. He sends us his Holy Spirit to help us to live his way. He places us in church families He gives us eternal life. He gives us preaching and teaching from God's word and godly examples like the prophets and the Nazarites to help us to live for him and to pull us back when we're wandering away. So when we rebel against God, we are rebelling against a God who has shown himself over and over and over again to be so good to us always. How can we treat God in that way when he has been so good to us? The people of God are supposed to reflect the glory of God, but instead they are living like the other nations around them and with an ingratitude to the God who rescued them and gave them the promised land. And if we are continually rebelling against God's ways, whilst thinking that we are God's people, we may come to realize what we see in verses 13 to 16, which is the shock of God's judgment. In verses 9 to 12, notice again the hand of God being good to Israel. He says, I destroyed I brought you up. I also raised up prophets and Nazarites. But notice God's hand in verse 13. Now then, I will crush you. That is a shock for Israel. They were God's people. We're God's people. He's not going to judge us, surely. We're Israel. Now before we look at this judgment, I want us to note something that we need to understand, that's very important. The, the, the sin of Israel here is not, it is not a one-off fall into sin. But it's a continual pattern of rebellion against God. So this is not talking about the Christian who falls and sins. We, all of us sin every day. And when we sin... We come back to God, we confess our sin, we seek his help, we walk again with God. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a continual pattern of rebellion where we do not turn back. And if we continually treat God's word and God's people like Israel do here in verse 12, we treat Israel like we treat the prophets and the Nazarites like they do in order that we can continue our rebellion then we must ask ourselves the question, am I really one of God's people? So understand, this is not, I sinned today, therefore God's going to strike me. This is, I am rebelling against God and I will not turn back. But there is a shock here, because Israel had no expectation that God would judge them especially because they were seemingly a blessed nation. They were rich and prosperous, but God is going to say that he's going to crush them. And the irony here in verse 13 is that they are prosperous, but they are going to be crushed even by their prosperity. Notice that there is a loaded cart of grain. Now they would know what a loaded cart of grain looks like. It was a A cart loaded with grain, but that was a sign of great prosperity. They were rich. And just like a cart loaded with grain crushes anything under it, so God will crush the people of Israel in the place where they are, even in the place of prosperity. Now, prosperity can be very dangerous for us, can't it? Especially if we are deluded in thinking that God must really love me because I'm prosperous. I mean, that's a ridiculous notion, by the way, because that is the, the unsaid uh, part of that is God mustn't love them over there because they're not prosperous. That's, that's very, very, very wrong. The measure of God's love for us is not the prosperity of its people. It's the death of his son, right? But they're prosperous, and they think God's blessing them, but the prosperity is going to crush them. God is going to judge them. It's a very dangerous place to be. We might think that God is blessing our lives when we are living in disobedience to him even. But it won't last. The cart is getting fuller and fuller and fuller. And you're underneath it and it's going to crush you. The people are crushed under the weight of their own prosperity, you see. And sometimes prosperity blinds us to the need for repentance. And if we're blind to our need for forgiveness... And repentance, we will be crushed under our own prosperity that's blinding us. Now, Israel would have been proud of that prosperity, but also they were very proud of their army. And in verses 14 to 16, we see that the judgment of God bring, uh, that He brings will destroy that which they are most proud of the army itself. Now, in verse 6 down to verse 8, there are seven sins of Israel. And it's balanced at the end of this oracle with seven types of military men being destroyed. There is the swift, the strong, the warrior, the archer, the fleet-footed soldier, the horseman, and the bravest warrior. In other words, all of Israel's army, the whole of it, is going to be destroyed as a judgment for the whole of Israel's sin. Notice how there is no escape for this army. Notice the repetition of the phrase, will not. So the swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. The horseman will not save his life. And then finally, in verse 16 to sum up, even the bravest warrior will flee naked on that day declares the Lord. In other words, the bravest soldiers that they have, the last line of defense, the ones that stay around the longest, they're going to be ashamed on that day. What's interesting here is that when Israel was at their most prosperous, when the grain was piled high, when they were at their most mighty militarily, here comes Amos from Tekoa, and tells them that their prosperity will crush them and their military might will be totally destroyed. That is the shock of God's judgment. Now, as Christians, we need to and should take much joy in the assurance of our salvation because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. He took the judgment for our sin on our behalf. We are reconciled to God We don't need to face his judgment because Jesus was judged for our sin and this is wonderful. But this should not, this truth of salvation should not make us complacent in regards to our sin. Rather, those who are truly saved are serious about sin because those who are truly saved have the Holy Spirit coming to live in them and the Holy Spirit of God is very, very serious about sin. And because God comes to live in us, Here's the key. The true people of God will reflect the God whose people they are. The true people of God will reflect the God whose people they are. The true people of God will not allow sin to continue and not repent when it's revealed to them. The true people of God, whilst not perfect, are being transformed into the image of his Son. And the New Testament speaks an awful lot about God judging those who think they are his people, who claim to be his people, but do not reflect it in their lives. And it speaks in the New Testament of the shock of the judgment of God that comes on those people. Let me give you a few uh, examples. One, One such place is Matthew chapter 18, with the parable of the unmerciful servant. The servant had been forgiven much by his master... And should have reflected the mercy of his master when he was asked to forgive a much smaller debt. Something like a pair of sandals, in fact. And Matthew tells us, after this servant would not forgive the much smaller debt, the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. He was judged because he did not reflect the mercy of his master. Uh, 1 John is uh, chapter 1. There's lots in this chapter, actually, about this kind of thing. But he says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, so we are God's people, I am a Christian, and yet walk in darkness, we lie And do not live out the truth. And then perhaps most soberingly of all, Hebrews chapter 10 says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And that verse is interesting Because Israel and Amos have just seen the enemies of God being judged. And the same raging fire, the same roar here in Hebrews is against those who deliberately keep on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth. In other words, if you've received the gospel and you claim to be in fellowship with God, you say you're one of his people, then you will live like one of his people. Now, you won't be perfect Don't mishear me, but there will be evidence of the Spirit of God working in you. Now, brothers and sisters, it is not my intention to make everyone here go home and doubt whether they are Christians. Your salvation isn't even based on what you do, it's based on what Christ has done. We look at the cross and the resurrection, that's where our salvation is based. We can rejoice in that but it is my intention to try and reflect what is the intention of God through Amos, which is for us to examine our lives as God's people and ask this question. In what way or what ways does my life reflect the evil around me rather than Jesus Christ? All of us can examine ourselves and ask the question, in what ways does my life reflect the evil around me more than Jesus Christ? And when we see an area of our life that reflects the evil around us more than it does Jesus Christ, we come again to God through Jesus Christ, and we say to God, forgive me for my sin, and help me to live for you. And then as Christians, we, with God's help, continue to in repentance, to walk with our God. That's the Christian response. That's the response that Israel should have done. We'll see whether they did. Uh, The clue's in the rest of the Old Testament. But the Christian response is repentance. It's not to doubt whether we are really saved. It's to trust in what God has done for us on the cross and to repent of our sin and follow Jesus Christ. And that reaction, by the way, if, you, if you're having that, shows you are a Christian. Wouldn't it be wonderful for people to come into our church and say, there's something different about these people, different from all the others around me, something kind of otherworldly. And then we open our Bibles and we show them Jesus, And they say, ah, that's what it is. You're just like him. May that be true of all of us, to the glory of his name. Well, as we close, I'd like us, first of all, just to have a time of of quiet. Why don't you ask yourself, just for a minute, that question? In what ways does my life reflect the evil around me more than it reflects Jesus? And just have a moment to think about that, and then we're going to stand together and pray a prayer of confession together before we ask God's help in our final song. So let's just have just a minute of quiet as we reflect before we stand to pray. Well, let's stand together and let's pray. And after we've prayed, we'll we'll sing together. Let's pray these words. Most merciful God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbours as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us to amend what we are and direct what we shall be, that we may do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you, our God. Amen. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen.